Well, good morning, LifePoint fam. Uh, if we haven't met yet, my name is Dan, and I serve as one of the pastors here at the Worthington campus, right alongside Jason Phillips, who is our campus pastor. And it is our joy to get to work with uh, Dalton up here every Sunday, and Holly downstairs, who's leading our chill, uh, LP kids right now. We are just so grateful uh, to have you here with us today. If this is your first time at LifePoint, uh, or maybe the last couple of weeks you've been trying to figure out, hey, what, what is this LifePoint thing? What, where, what's my place here? How do I get more involved? One of the easiest ways you can take your next step is to take out your phone right now, uh, and I challenge you to do it because it's pretty bright in here. I can see whether or not you're actually going to do it. Take out your phone and scan that QR code right in front of you. That's going to bring you to a, a form that will uh, either lead you to some sermon notes you can follow along uh, in the sermon today, or it'll lead you to a uh, new card right at the bottom there. Fill that card out, and we'd love to make a $5 donation to one of our partner ministries in your honor as a way of saying thank you for being here, and uh, you are already being a part of what God is doing in in and through LifePoint Worthington. Once you fill that out, we'll connect with you later this week. We'd love to hear your story and share a bit more about our story and what we believe God has called us to as a church in the Worthington community. Uh, all right, like I said, first time here, you, you are on a great Sunday because we are starting a brand new series through the Old Testament book of Daniel, a series that we are calling Exiles, the Old Testament book of Daniel. It is a fascinating little book for a bunch of reasons, some of which we're going to cover today or explore over the next several weeks as we study this book. Broadly, the book of Daniel tells the story of God's people having been exiled or removed from their homeland, from the promised land, and they are discovering what it looks like to live faithfully wherever God has placed them. Ultimately, what we see in the book of Daniel is this profound idea that faith is not about, uh, or faith is about how you live, not where you live. Faith is about how you live, not where you live. And what we're going to see week in and week out uh, is this deep challenge for us as followers of Jesus to live faithfully here and now. God has called us and placed us in this time and in this season and in this community for a reason. Uh, and we are called to engage faithfully. Right? And it is about how we live. We're going to be asking questions about what does it mean for me to take what I profess to believe on a Sunday morning here in this room out into the streets uh, where God has called us, where we live uh, Monday through Saturday. Faith is about how you live, not just where you live. Now, here's what I want to do in our time today. I know not all of us know way too much about the book of Daniel, and so we're going to take some time to get on the same page. We're going to do a brief introduction, I promise is going to be brief, uh, and we're going to talk about who Daniel was, what this book is all about, and how it fits into the larger story of the Bible. And then we're going to look at two of the major themes that show up in the book of Daniel. Both of them are present in the first two verses of chapter one. So we're, we're not even going to get much farther than verses one and two of chapter uh, one this morning. Those themes are of a wavering people, that is you and I, wavering back and forth, and an unwavering God. A wavering people and an unwavering God. And my hope is uh, that we walk out of here today, we are thinking about the power and the goodness of God that shows up in our lives, in our own stories, and even in the failure and brokenness that you and I carry with us today. 
So let me uh, read this passage. I will pray, and then we will get started. Uh, Daniel chapter 1, starting in verse 1. Again, you can follow with me in the notes uh, if you've pulled that up or in your own Bibles uh, that you have with you. In the third year, the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them into the land of Shinar to the house of his God and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, the the chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance, skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans." The king assigned them a daily portion of food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank, and they were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah, and the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your kindness this morning. We ask that you would meet us here in this place. And Lord, we pray uh, for the many other uh, gospel preaching churches around the greater Columbus area that are meeting right now today. Would you show up uh, in their gatherings? Would you show up uh, to move powerfully in these churches? And I pray for a great spirit of camaraderie among uh, Jesus-loving, gospel-exalting churches in Columbus that we would work together for the kingdom here uh, and work to seek uh, God's kingdom established here on earth now as it is in heaven. Lord, we thank you for your kindness. Speak to us today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's go ahead and get started. Like, you know, I've done this a couple times now. I like to work through passages with questions, right? So I'm gonna have a couple questions that, uh, that are gonna give us the, our bearings with the book of Daniel. Like I said, it's new for us. We haven't done this uh, in a while, so let's just get on the same page. Here's the first question. Who was Daniel? Who was Daniel? Uh, well, what we know about him is really what we can gather uh, from verse 3. Look with me there. Uh, then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility. Well, okay, let me pause here because before we can even talk about Daniel, we have to know a little bit about his counterpart in the book, King Nebuchadnezzar. King Nebuchadnezzar. And to be clear, this is a historical person that we actually know lived. We, we know a lot about Nebuchadnezzar. He is one of the most important rulers in the ancient world in terms of his impact on the global stage. He is credited with really establishing the Babylonian Empire, not just into this minor, uh, minor empire in part of the world, but a major, a global empire, in fact. He was a force to be reckoned with. And in verse 3, he had surrounded the city of Jerusalem as part of a con- as conquering the city. Uh, he took some of the upper class people 
people back to his empire where he's going to matriculate them back into their own culture. He wants to indoctrinate them so they will be thoroughly Babylonian uh, and then function as emissaries or diplomats in the regions they're originally from. So this is a a, a way to uh, establish power in the region. That's what King Nebuchadnezzar is trying to do. And, and, And again, this is well documented in the Babylonian records. Right, and this is all part of their standard practice going from region to region. Interestingly enough, the University of Chicago, which is in the real promised land right now, the University of Chicago houses some of the best artifacts from Nebuchadnezzar's time. You you can actually head down to the Oriental Institute of Chicago on the, the campus of the University of Chicago and see a ton of the stuff that they have here, including these lions that you see on the screen behind me. You can go see these lines that lined the the gate, the entrance into Babylon. Uh, And these are not, uh, when you go and see it, you're not looking at a recreation. I mean, you're looking at the actual lines that the real person of Daniel would have passed by as he walked into the city of Babylon. All right, now, what we know about Daniel is he's probably a boy. He's probably around the age of 14 from the royal family in the kingdom of Judah. And he is the author of the book of Daniel. Daniel, here's the second question. When did he write this book? Look at verse one. In the third year, the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Now, historians are able to place this uh, together or piece together from a bunch of different sources that this event took place somewhere around 609 BC. The, the Babylonians, one of the things they're famous for is very advanced record keeping. They, they had meticulous records uh, and a lot of those have been preserved. We're able to, to find these. And so we're able to pinpoint when a lot of this stuff actually takes place. And again, Daniel would have been about 14 years old when Nebuchadnezzar took him into Babylon. But as we'll talk more about through this series, over the years, Daniel became a very influential person in the empire, rising through the ranks, given more and more responsibility. He actually outlives King Nebuchadnezzar uh, and is still in Babylon when the Persian Empire takes control. There's about a 75-year time frame that's covered in the book of Daniel uh, that is written toward the end. have been written towards the end of his life somewhere around 533 BC. That's, you know, give or take a couple of years. Uh, and it may seem like for a minute that I'm getting into the weeds here. Some of you are like, Dan, come on, you got to get out of the weeds, got to keep moving. But, but when we believe the book of Daniel was written is actually a very big deal. It's actually a very big deal. I mean, there are several major sections in Daniel. So one of the things it's famous for is uh, these visions or prophecy right? Things that have not yet happened, but Daniel is seeing and describing. At life point, we join the long history of God's people in believing that prophecy is real, that God is able from time to time to miraculously provide a vision about the future, and that he does so from time to time and preserves it in his word. In fact, a good chunk of the Old Testament is made up of what we would call prophetic literature. It's describing things that have not yet happened uh, when they were written. Prophecies pointing forward to the person and work of Jesus, some of them that have still not been fulfilled. We just came out of a 10-week series looking at the book of Revelation, where not all of it is future, but there are uh, prophetic aspects of the book of Revelation. But here's where things start to get really interesting. Some of the prophecies and visions in Daniel 
are so specific and so spot on that most modern scholarship on the Bible, right, generally folks who are not followers of Jesus but just kind of view this from an academic lens, they take it as self-evident that the book of Daniel absolutely could not have been written until hundreds and hundreds of years later. Let me give you an example. I'm not going to get to this in this series, but Daniel chapter 7 and 8, there is a prophecy about a kingdom that is going to come from Greece and destroy the Persian Empire. And those empires are named in Daniel chapter 7 and 8. It even goes uh, as far as describing the kind of conqueror this person would be, how his empire would expand, and to a T, the unanimous belief is that Daniel was describing Alexander the Great, right? probably one of the most famous military leaders of all time. And who, more importantly, did exactly what Daniel prophesied what would happen about 200 years after Daniel was alive. And Daniel describes this with such detail that many of the scholars look back and say, I mean, man, there is no way this could have been written before Alexander the Great. Because in order for it to have been written beforehand, you would have needed to believe that prophecy was real. You would need to believe that uh, the God who Daniel describes as bringing about these things was real. But it is far easier to assume that those things just can't be true. And therefore, Daniel must have been written sometime uh, a couple hundred years uh, later after the time of Alexander the Great. But the reason this is important is because depending on when you believe this book was written, Daniel is either writing down things that are revealed to him by a, uh, by a real God, telling real stories of real rescue and recording events that will actually take place and therefore profoundly matter for the lit way we live and engage in the world around us, or the book of Daniel is essentially fiction. Inspirational fiction, maybe, but, but at best, it'd be some you know, weird form of religious propaganda, at worst, uh, intentionally deceptive. At a life point, we believe the book of Daniel was written by Daniel, the actual person, sometime around 530 BC, before any of these uh, events he describes took place. All right, here's the last question we're going to look at today, and this is going to give us some context, some helpful context. How does the book of Daniel fit in with the rest of the Bible? Actually, I think this is one of the most important questions we can ask when we're looking at any book of the Bible. Uh, it gives us the contest, it context and sets up not only what is happening, but why it's happening. Look with me at verse 1 again. In the third year, the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. Now, like I said earlier, that gives us a good timestamp of when all of these things uh, happened, but it doesn't tell us anything about why any of this is going on. To see that, we actually have to take a step back for a moment and look at the larger story of the Old Testament. And, and I'm going to fly over this quickly, uh, and we'll see, just look at the first five books of the Old Testament, what is sometimes called the Pentateuch. The book of Genesis shows the story of God's creation, the creation of the world around us, but also the creation of his people, the people of Israel, a people he established to be his ambassadors to the nations around them, right? They were supposed to live in a way that told others who God was and what he was like. The book of Exodus describes how God's people grew, suffered, but were rescued from Egypt and brought to a new land where God would provide for them as they would continue on the mission of making God known to the world around him. 
the book of the books of Leviticus and Numbers. Uh, we read the covenant that God made with his people where he shows them, hey, this is how you are supposed to live in the world around you. And he spelled out the ways they were supposed to be distinct from the world around them, not because they were better, but because God is holy. And their distinctness was to be a reflection of God's holiness. Here's the point. God's desire was and is to use his people as the primary way of revealing himself to the world. Let me say that again. God's desire was and is to use his people as the primary way of revealing himself to the world. You're going to have to hold on to that. We'll come back to that in a bit. And that brings us to the book of Deuteronomy, maybe the most important book in the Old Testament. In fact, I might just say it. Deuteronomy is the most important book in the Old Testament. It is essentially a written version of a sermon Moses gave to God's people before they entered into the promised land. He he reminded them, again, how they were to put God's goodness and compassion and his kindness on display in the world around them, how they were supposed to live uh, and show their loyalty to God through their obedience to him, living the way that they have been created to live. And if Deuteronomy is the most important book in the Old Testament, chapter 22 is the most important chapter in the most important book of the Old Testament because it explains everything else that happens in the rest of the Old Testament, including the book of Daniel. What happens in 28 is Moses explains to them that as they enter this promised land, they are standing on the cusp of either great blessing or cursing. That if they would remain loyal to God, to worship him alone, to serve and honor him, if they would live out the commandments, they would experience great joy in obedience, like deep satisfaction, living the way that they've been created to live. They would experience life the way God intended it to be lived and enjoyed. But if they were to waver back and forth and turn from the commandments, between worshiping God on one day and uh, worshiping the the gods of the nations the the next day, if they were to pick and choose the commandments they wanted to follow, if they were to pledge their allegiance to someone or something else, this would bring about a curse. The land would become like a prison. They would be harassed, unprotected, carted away, and it would lead to suffering because the rejection of the life God prepared them for, it would lead to exile where they would be expelled from the land that God had provided for them. And spoiler alert, the rest of the Old Testament from Deuteronomy onwards is the story of how God's people essentially choose the curse. How they slowly lost their loyalty and started to look elsewhere. They're stepping out on their relationship with God. And from time to time, God would speak to the people through prophets. Prophets like Isaiah and Ezekiel and Micah and Jeremiah and others were sent as messengers to God's people to call them to turn from their way of life and return back to God. To be loyal to him. To return to a lifestyle marked by obedience because in that they would find joy and blessing and satisfaction and that if they did not do it, it would bring about the curses of Deuteronomy 28. And while over and over again, the Old Testament affirms that God is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, there comes a time when his justice demands justice, even over his own people. Let that sink in for a minute. 
And two nations are brought forward to do exactly what's spelled out in Deuteronomy 28. The Assyrians and the Babylonians. Again, two empires that we know for sure actually existed. Nations that have been raised up and are on the global stage because God will use them to bring judgment on his people. And this brings us back to Daniel chapter 1, verse 1. In the third year, the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim into his hand. Nebuchadnezzar is there to bring about judgment on God's people. And in a strange way, you see God's power, don't you? Because verse two makes it very clear that Nebuchadnezzar just didn't just happen to come to Jerusalem. He didn't just, you know, by his own uh, insight and military strength besiege the city, but it was the Lord who gave Jerusalem over to him. It is the Lord's power at work here. Even the name for God here in verse two in the original language in, in the Hebrew is, is not the normal name we find for God. It's the word Adonai, the word that used, is used to describe powerful leaders. That's who Daniel is talking about. But the fact that Nebuchadnezzar is here at all brings up the first of the two major themes that show up in this book. That God's people are a wavering people. It's the idea that God has set up a way to live, a standard for humanity, a standard that has not been met. It's not been met by his people. In fact, it's not been met by any of us. In the New Testament, Paul says it this way. Uh, for all have sinned, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But I'm really intentional with that word I've used. Maybe you've picked up on it a couple times to describe humanity. Wavering. Because I think it captures an important nuance for us that can easily be missed. Kind of makes me think of uh, being at the park when I was a kid with uh, teeter-totter. You might have seen that behind me. Not like one of those safe ones you have at the, play, the park now. Like if you go to a park now, teeter-totters are super boring because they're very safe. I'm talking about the real kind of teeter-totter, like the kind that almost seemed designed to hurt children. Did you ever try and do that thing where you stand right in the middle of, of one of them and try and balance in the middle of it? I mean, you're, you're kind of wobbling on either side, leaning this way or that way. I mean, that's what it means to waver and to go back and forth. It's, it's easy to stand on one side or the other side. You don't, you don't fall that way. But when you're right in the middle, you waver. You lose your footing. This is what God's people were doing. This is what God's people continue today to do. It was like, like he said, hey, I want you to live this way, but, but, but we instead say, no, no, we're, we're going to try and do both. We're going to take a little bit of your advice, God. We're going to take a little bit of our, you know, our own wisdom, and we'll figure out a way to make both of these things work. We'll hold them in tension. We can get that after. We can get after that. And wavering is this back and forth process we experience as a part of being human, I mean, for the most part, people are generally, you know, not as bad as we could be, but that doesn't make us completely good either. Any more than saying like, well, it, you know, it, it could be worse. Makes, <laughs> makes whatever 
painful experience you're going through right now, an enjoyable experience. Yeah, of course it could be worse. And this is not just a way to describe God's people in the Old Testament. It's the way to describe all of us today. It's, friends, that's why I can stand here this morning, I can preach, I can sing, I can pray with, with all of this religious fervor and accoutrements and have it all right, but, but if, I get, if I get back to school on Monday morning, drop my kid off and that dude cuts me off in the car line again, we're gonna have a problem. It's because I, I waver. I still have some ongoing anger things that are playing out in my life. That's why you can say uh, you love your wife, you'd be willing to do anything for your family, but as soon as their backs are turned, you may be back at the same thing you promised you would never do again. Why? Even if you meant it when you said it, we waver. And our wavering is our failure. Our wavering is our sin. See, one of the haunting parts of the book of Daniel is it shows us that God takes our wavering seriously. That he is not one who turns a blind eye to what is evil. He does not turn away and and write off how we live with a casual boys will be boys and girls will be girls mantra. No, it shows us that God is powerful. He is a powerful God of justice and therefore a God who brings about judgment for our failure, who will bring about judgment for our sin. Friends, we are a wavering people. The problem we have is that God continues to want to use his people as a way to demonstrate who he is and what he is actually like in the world around us. People, I mean, think about it this way. The city of Worthington is going to form its opinion about what Jesus is like based on how we respond. And the problem is we are wavering. We don't often give a very great picture of it. God is grieved by that. He is grieved by us when when we do not represent him well. When we show up in our place of work, when we show up in our neighborhood as part of the body of Christ and give a marred image. Friends, the story of Daniel reminds us that God takes our wavering seriously. And yet the good news that we proclaim today is that while we are wavering, we have an unwavering God. That he looks at our brokenness, our wavering, our failure, and our sin, and still shows us a powerful kindness that we do not deserve, a mercy that we have not earned. I mean, the the book of Daniel wonderfully puts on display that God is not just a God of power, he is a God of rescue. And therefore, friends, we have hope. He is a God who, we'll see, powerfully rescues Daniel from the lion's den, who powerfully steps in and rescues his three friends from the fiery furnace. And he is the God who has not and will not completely reject his people, but will powerfully rescue them and does that through the person and work of Jesus. 
You see, the book of Daniel tells the story of a wavering people and an unwavering God. It tells the story of our brokenness, our failure, and our sin. While we have all, in some way, failed to live the perfect life God has created us for, the book of Daniel points forward both to the real judgment we deserve and to the one who took that judgment on himself. It points forward to the one who has lived the life we should have but failed to live. It points forward to the one who has been perfectly obedient to all of what God called his people to, to to what he called us to. I mean, the book of Daniel points forward to Jesus who lived the perfect life. And while our wavering has earned judgment, it is the good news that Jesus lovingly and willingly chose to step in our place, to take on the judgment that we have earned, to die in our place for our sin, for our wavering back and forth, that he would take what we deserve so that we could live the life he earned. So that when we put our faith in Jesus, pledging our allegiance to him and him alone, we are brought into this new life, this new kind of life, this new kind of kingdom. And it is the kingdom that Daniel describes here as an everlasting and never-ending kingdom. Some of you are here today listening to this message because you have come on the arm of a friend or have been invited or just just curious about what this this place is. You would not describe yourself as a follower of Jesus. I, I want you to hear from me. I am glad you're here. As we go through the book of Daniel together, right, there's going to be questions you have, feel free, come chat with me. I'd love to uh, sit down over coffee and work through whatever questions you have that come up. But the book of Daniel is going to feel like a warning to us. It is a warning that there is a God and he cares far more about evil and injustice than we ever could and he will do something about it. He is the God of justice and so he is a God of judgment. But I want you to hear that there is hope The same God of justice is the God who rescues. And you can experience that rescue by putting your faith and trust in Jesus, recognizing that he lived the life you should have lived, died the death you should have died, and offers you full, true forgiveness through faith. All right. I want to end our time with one more question. One more question. You might be asking, Dan, what are we supposed to do with this book? What, what, what difference does the book of Daniel make for us today? That's the right question. That's the right question. And what we're going to see, especially as we come to the uh, New Testament, uh, is that as followers of Jesus today, we still, in a sense, like Daniel, are exiles This home, this country, this city, this neighborhood is not our home. It's not our true home. In fact, if you've been with us for a while, like I said earlier, you know that we just finished a 10-week series in the book of Revelation, ultimately looking forward to the fullness of God's kingdom when he makes all things new, all things right, where our true everlasting home is. But until that day, we live in exile. So what does it mean for us today? Well, I think the larger story of Daniel gives us clarity here. Remember, God's uh, people in the Old Testament were to be his representatives to a watching world. I told you we'd come back to this. That has not changed. Today, 
church, we still represent God. It's why one of the most used metaphors for the church in the New Testament is the body of Christ. And I think sometimes we uh, forget just how jarring that language is. We are his body. We we represent him. When we show up somewhere, we represent him. It means that uh, when, uh, when people look at the church, they are looking at a picture of Jesus. That the world around us is forming their opinions and thoughts about Jesus based on their interactions with us, based on what the church says, what the church does, where the church shows up and speaks up, and when the church stays silent. Friends, yes, we are a wavering people, but how we live in exile now matters. How we represent Jesus matters. And that's got to be playing around in our mind as we think about some of the most practical challenges we face today, even in exile. Let Let me give you a practical example. Next week, in our state, we will have the opportunity to go to the polls and vote on several issues. One of them getting the most attention right now is issue one, which seeks to solidify the right to an abortion in the state's constitution. And you may have heard a ton of commentary. Of course, you've seen signs all over the place. You've seen ads all over the place about what a vote yes means or what a vote no means and what we're trying to preserve. And and want to be careful in talking about this because I know that one word, abortion, is a powerful word. Some of you have very strong reactions to it. Some of you are thinking, finally, he's talking about it. Others of you may be thinking, here we go again with an eye roll. Of course, course we're talking about this in a church. And still, there are some of you who hear that word with a gut punch because you have personally felt bludgeoned by it, sadly, in Christian community. I want to be clear with you that I I am persuaded that human life, life with invaluable, with incredible value and meaning and worth begins at conception. This is the unavoidable, consistent witness throughout the entirety of the scriptures. That's what I see as I look at the text. And so life is worth defending. But this is not the prevailing belief system in our broader culture, to use the language of of Daniel. We live in Babylon and uh, are surrounded by Babylon's ideology. Interestingly enough, you will see this time and time again. Culturally, we insist on having a scientific and political conversation when this question about the right to life is profoundly and solidly philosophical and theological. And in this current moment in history, this is not true for every time and place, but in this current moment in history, one way we represent Jesus, even in exile, is by using the mechanisms available to us as best we can for good. And voting is influence. Friends, and we are called to use our influence for the good of others. That includes the unborn. We use our influence for good. And yet, talking about how we show up and represent Jesus, the church should be involved in far more than voting. We, we ought to be at the very front lives and not just pro-life, but whole life. We, we, we ought to be the loudest voices 
in the church, advocating for, supporting, engaging with adoption and foster care, both of which are great sentiments to be for, but take incredible courage and conviction to meaningfully step into. Vote your convictions. Yes, but friends, let's go then and live those convictions out. Let's live in such a way that the community around us, that that Worthington around us, does not merely hear what we are against, but they see and they feel what we are for. And it's, it's as we live out our convictions in exile that we seek the good of the city in which God has placed us. And even when we waver back and forth, it's that our unwavering God continues to use, prune, protect, and preserve his wavering people. Let's pray.